Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Eckersley, and I'm a professor of political science in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And my job is to welcome you all here this evening. First, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this event is taking place, the land of the Wurundjeri, and pay respect to their elders, to their elders um, and their families. I'd like to give a warm welcome uh, to guests to the university tonight, and of course to staff and students as well. And we're all here um, for the Energy Futures Seminar, looking at energy policy, where to, uh, where to here. It's hard to think of a more um, topical topic, as it were, given what's gone down on the national stage in recent weeks. Now, this event is jointly organised by the Melbourne Energy Institute and the Grattan Institute, and it will be moderated by Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute. And my job is simply to uh, introduce Tony, and he will then take over for the evening. Tony Wood has been Energy Program Director at Grattan since 2011, after 14 years working at Origin Energy in a senior executive role. From 2009 to 2014, he was also Program Director of Clean Energy Projects at the Clinton Foundation, advising governments in the Asia-Pacific region on effective deployment of large-scale, low-emission energy technologies. In 2008, he was seconded to provide an industry perspective to the first Grattan Climate Review. So I welcome Tony, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Robin. Um, Ross, it is 10 years this month since the first Ghana Climate Change Review. One would like to think we won't be here in 10 years' time wondering what we're going to do about uh, climate policy and energy policy. Again, <clears throat> I wouldn't bet on it. Um, given what's happened in the last little while, it all went pretty well, as you know, and um, things look pretty smooth sailing from here on in. I was just saying before to somebody that um, a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago now, probably it seems like forever, but it was probably about three and a half weeks, um, there was the every six months before the... Um, Coag Energy Council has their regular meeting themselves. They, this is the meeting of energy, um, state and territory and federal ministers. They have a stakeholder meeting beforehand and they invite um, a whole range of people, including sometimes people like me. And uh, at this meeting, I got up and said, look, I have to declare a vested interest because if you get this right and fix it, then I'm out of a job. I didn't mean it that much. Um, they didn't need to keep me going in this so much longer. So um, unfortunately, you've seen what happened. Look, I think the, um, what is clear is that even with the best attempts, and I personally had thought that you know, Josh Frydenberg um, did as good a job as anyone possibly could to try and find a way through a minefield where he had mines on the, the friendly fire on one side, effectively, and the, um, and the enemy fire on the other, and he survived that minefield for a long time. And eventually, I think he was blown up by a completely different bear trap indeed um, uh, in terms of the, the politics of what happened. And so um, there's some interesting questions about that as to whether we all give up. I think the, rea the reality is we now have no choice except to proceed on a different paradigm, and that is that the prospects for bipartisan support are dead. 
as is the National Energy Guarantee. Now, the guarantee it may be resurfaced in a different form, and we might even talk about that this evening. But the idea that either side of politics can proceed on the basis of getting bipartisan support, I think, is no longer a credible uh, part of that paradigm. And what that might mean I mean, something we might also want to discuss. What is clear is that we now have a minister for reducing electricity prices um, who will be focused on reducing electricity prices. Um, good luck. I'm sure he'll take credit if prices go down and he'll blame somebody else if prices don't come down. Um, the opposition will now maybe, maybe have to develop a policy. They haven't got one at the moment to address their own emissions reduction targets. So that will be um, educational, if not mildly entertaining. Well, that develops. The states will do what states do and get on with the things they want to do. And you've already seen in the last few days only the Victorian government announced some of the things they're supporting in terms of renewable energy. Um, and you can have your views about what you think about that. Um, what is clear is that people do want cheaper electricity. But if you look at the surveys, people also want the government to do something about climate change. And they'd really like it if the lights didn't go out. So we're still left with that interesting trilemma. So this evening, um, we may try and keep away from the politics of this a little bit, but anyone who thinks that politics is not political, energy is not political, is kidding themselves because it is, it has been, always will, has and always will be. But for a little bit, we might try and talk about some of the things that need to be done. And we've got three people who are, uh, I can't think of anybody who's better, uh, better uh, experienced and better credentialed to talk about these issues from both a systems engineering perspective, from an economic policy perspective, and from the perspective of someone who's worked on the, on the, on the regulatory and structural side of the deals um, that we've seen. And so I'm now going to ask each of our speakers to speak for about 10 minutes. Hopefully that will leave enough time to have a very brief conversation on stage and then open that up to the audience for Q&A. I'm not going to read the bios. The people who've um, registered to come here tonight will have read them. Um, but we'll move straight into introducing the three speakers. Chloe Munro, um, I met Chloe when I first came to Melbourne and I was on the buying side of a, of, of a company that was buying a business from the Victorian government and she was selling one. Um, we think we did a, a pretty good deal at the time and so I'm sure did the Victorian government, um, but that also what brought me to Melbourne. Um, Ross Garno, people would know obviously Ross is very firmly associated with this university now and is clearly, as you know, a, a very well respected um, uh, speaker both on the, on the economic issues and the environmental issues that relate to climate change. And Michael Breer, who partners with Grattan um, through the Melbourne Energy Institute, um, knows more about systems engineering than I'll even attempt to ever know. So hopefully that will be enough to give us all a feel for some of the perspectives about where to from here. And I'll start by introducing Chloe Munro. Great. Well, um, thank you, Tony, for that introduction. And thank you also to the Grattan and Melbourne Energy Institutes for this uh, invitation to share with you some of my very many thoughts on where to from here. But I'll just share a few of them tonight. Um, and I, I've had this song running around in my head, which I'm a great fan of Fred Astaire, and it's from the film... Uh, swing time, I think, uh, which goes, um, pick yourself up, dust yourself down, and start all over again. Obviously, a few of you know this, and he sings it much, much better than I do. But um, that is what I've had to do many times in my career in uh, public policy and around energy, and uh, definitely what the Energy Security Board in particular has to do right now. But I don't actually think we have to start all over again. And although you know, from my point of view, I, I find the National Energy Guarantee very hard to mourn. I think there's still something from it that can be, from the process that can be salvaged, that's helpful, uh, that can move us forward. 
And the reason why I say um, the National Energy Guarantee is something uh, hard to mourn, uh, I thought it was a pretty ugly thing, and mainly because it was really overly complex. It had a great deal of complexity uh, relative to what it was actually, the actual outcomes, the actual impact it was going to have on energy market outcomes uh, in terms of reliability, emissions reduction and cost. Uh, and I'm always suspicious of complexity. And that complexity came from um, an attempt, a valiant uh, but ultimately unsuccessful attempt to appease certain political requirements that in the end uh, couldn't or wouldn't be appeased. So that was um, basically what happened. And what we saw was the, the business community and, and energy uh, market bodies, mo mo uh, industry associations and commentators like Tony mostly swinging in behind it because they, uh, like me, uh, thought, well, the best policy is the one that you can actually have and possibly we can have this one, but it turned out we couldn't. So I think we do have to accept that right now Canberra's incapable of delivering, as Tony said, bipartisan policy on climate change at least. And rather than speculating about what a good climate change policy would look like, um, I, I think really it is going to be up to the states and uh, other parties to cobble together a bunch of action and hopefully at least that will move us in the right direction, even though it may be suboptimal. And I think it's actually... I'm sort of fascinated by the spectacle of uh, the Australian government, the federal government, vacating the space on climate change and the states therefore crowding in. And meanwhile, the Australian government is intruding quite aggressively into what constitutionally sits with the states, which is uh, energy policy and the ownership of energy assets. And I find it quite disturbing uh, that the Australian government now owns three energy retailers. Uh, you may not know that, but they do, and uh, are proposing all sorts of pretty heavy-handed inter interventions uh, through investment in infrastructure and through telling uh, private businesses exactly what they should do. So that's, I find that slightly troubling, but let's move on from that. And go back to basics. Well, I, I was, as, as you probably know, I was one of the people who worked on the Finkel Review, and the Finkel Review had three pillars under, underneath our recommendations and I have to reiterate we, we handed down our report not more than a year much more than a year ago 49 of the 50 recommendations were accepted and were acted upon and the three pillars were an orderly transition that's the one that's under question at the moment uh, system planning and governance and I do think we've had advances in the latter two uh, certainly with the work that the energy market operator has done on its integrated system plan I think that's very significant there's a lot of consultation to go on that but I think that in itself can actually go a long way towards assisting investor confidence because one of the problems is that there are so many degrees of freedom so many variables that investors can't tell what might be in their own best interests, let alone what might be useful in terms of the, the interests of the whole of the system, such as security and reliability. So there needs to be a bit of orchestration and reduction in the range of variables and a plan that says, well, this is vaguely where we're heading. These, we've taken into account all these scenarios and we think this is the best bet in terms of uh, trans coordinating transmission investment and location of particular types of generation and this is where demand's going. I think that would be very helpful. So that's an important piece of work. Um, getting back to the National Energy Guarantee and the one thing that in it is worth saving, uh, and this picked up on an idea that was in the Finkel Review where we said, well, whatever your emissions reduction 
strategy is going to have, that's going to have an impact on the, on the composition, particularly obviously of the generation side of things, but also other resources that can be brought forward into the market, such as demand response. And uh, so the, 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 the um, market operator particularly, but the, the system operator, needs to have visibility of that and, and a way of making sure that we don't move outside of safe operating parameters in terms of reliability. In other words, their, their responsibility to keep the lights on. And of course you want that to happen in the, most, uh, the lowest cost way. So um, that's what the uh, idea of marrying climate change and energy policy together was about. Now, the, the, it was a very grandiose claim that the National Energy Guarantee married those two policies together. It didn't. But it did do this one thing, which is to say, well, um, let's look at what the likely scenarios are in terms of uh, the investments that are in the pipeline, the changes that are happening on the demand side, driven by things like the weather as well as consumer behaviour, um, the government policies that actually are there and that are driving investment in a particular direction and are introducing more, more or less more variable renewable energy into the system, and how those um, retiring power stations going to be replaced. So let's actually look at that and then say, well, is there going to be some sort of gap that will cause um, discomfort for, for, for customers? And if so, we need some sort of procurement mechanism. Now, that is actually partly in train which is with what is called the uh, reliability and emergency reserve, uh, reserve trader. So there is some work going on that. Uh, which may tie us through the next couple of summers. It's probably not the optimal instrument for long term. It would be desirable if you never got to the procurement place. But let's call a spade a spade. This is actually, all it is, is a capacity mechanism. And it, for years, that was anathema in the East Coast market. They have one in the West Coast. They have one in pretty much every other energy market, electricity market around the world. So I think what we need to do is focus on that piece and be a bit more accepting that um, the direction of travel in terms of investment, in terms of generation composition, will be just universally towards variable renewables. Uh, and that needs to be backed up in various ways, and that needs to be procured and brought forward in a way that's most economic. It's actually a simpler problem than I think people are making out. Uh, I think many steps are being taken towards it in the wake of the Finkel review, and it'll be great if the Energy Security Board can get back to that job. And so I remain marginally optimistic that we can make progress, although naturally I think we could make a lot more progress if there was a little bit more political will behind it. Thank you. Yes. Well, I think in the last uh, three weeks we've learnt for the sixth time uh, since December 2009 uh, that uh, the idea of uh, consensus uh, between the major parties uh, on uh, climate and energy is pie in the sky. I think we learnt it uh, elaborately in December 2009. Uh, it's uh, one always uh, hopes that if there is another attempt, it might come to uh, uh, to something, but. Uh, uh, there's actually no way of reconciling a, a view that climate change is rubbish, uh, climate science is rubbish and you shouldn't do anything about it, uh, with the view that Australia needs to do its fair share in a global effort to combat climate change. They're basically incompatible uh, views. 
they're conscientiously and strongly held by different parts of the population. The polls say that overwhelmingly the majority of Australians uh, think that we should do our fair share in a global effort on climate change. There's, there's a, a, a minority of Australians, 14% if you believe the exit polls from the 2013 election, who strongly believe we shouldn't. Uh, uh, but this issue was only ever going to be resolved through democratic processes with the majority uh, succeeding uh, in uh, having their view heard over the, the small minority. Um, uh, the, uh, I think there are advantages, as uh, Chloe's just mentioned, in recognising uh, that the NEG was a pretty crude mechanism. Many of its features were only there uh, in the hope of bridging that impossible divide. Uh, for example, uh, much of the complexity of the NEG came from burying the carbon price in a set of contracts so that you couldn't see that it actually was a carbon price. And that, that hugely increased the transactions costs, the complexity, uh, and actually would have given incumbents even greater uh, oligopoly power than they have under current arrangements. Uh, so we're, if we're not trying to reconcile the irreconcilable, uh, then uh, we, we can uh, look analytically at what will actually uh, work best. Uh, we do still have to think about how uh, we can do our fair share in the global effort on climate change at the lowest possible cost, keeping prices down as much to the lowest possible levels, uh, and maintaining a secure and reliable power system as we do it. The, the trilemma as the uh, Finkel report uh, uh, set it out. Uh, on climate change, uh, the arithmetic is very simple. Uh, well, first, uh, the, Australia's uh, commitment is 26 to a 28% reduction in total emissions, not electricity emissions, uh, and increasing that commitment in line with what, it, what the international community agrees is necessary to meet the two degree and possibly 1.5 degree target. Uh, the straightforward reading of that says that 26 to 28% is uh, is, is not nowhere near enough, and if everything was working, if we didn't have Trump in the United States and, uh, 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 and the Australian government going along with it, uh, then uh, uh, we would have to uh, strengthen those uh, emissions reduction targets over time quite a lot. Uh, the, the basic arithmetic, and it's the result of a lot of analysis, the detailed modelling of my review, the climate change authorities' work, the detailed modelling of the Department of Industry, the detailed modelling of the Department of Treasury, says that if you're, whatever your emissions reduction target, if you want to do it at the lowest possible cost to the economy, you've got to go twice as fast in uh, in, in electricity as you do in the general economy because some, some of the other things are very hard. Uh, so uh, a if we're, even to get the 26 to 28 uh, percent reduction on $2,005 by 2030, uh, we'd have to have um, uh, probably around 50 percent uh, uh, reduction by 2030 in the electricity sector. Electricity is also a very important vehicle for decarbonisation of transport and industry. It's not only important in the industry sector itself. So, so if you take uh, climate science seriously, you think Australia should uh, do its fair share, uh, then 
then we are aiming to to roughly halve at least uh, emissions in the electricity sector by 2030. We may need to do more than that if it turns out to be as hard as it looks to reduce emissions in agriculture. Uh, and and then the neg under a great smokescreen uh, uh, was burying that, that simple reality. Um, uh, uh, on reliability and security, tremendously important uh, features of uh, the energy system. Uh, we, we have mechanisms, uh, institutions whose role it is to deliver those. We set up the Australian Energy Regulator, uh, the AEMC, Australian Energy Market uh, uh, Commission, uh, the AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator. Between them, different responsibilities, but a statutory responsibility and lots of power to guarantee reliability. Well, they didn't do their job uh, until the series of crises in 2016 and 27, the blackout in South Australia, the, 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 the near misses in New South Wales and Victoria in 2017. Uh, and now they're doing their job and the, uh, and, and the leadership of uh, Audrey Zibelman, AEMO is right on top of that. Uh, and, uh, uh, um, uh, and those institutions doing their job uh, can make all the difference on security and uh, reliability. Uh, how should they do their job? Well, I've got a suggestion to make. Um, I, uh, security is actually being delivered, and the new fast batteries uh, are being demonstrated in Hornsdale by uh, uh, Tesla and uh, Nguyen uh, uh, show how powerful the new technologies are in delivering stability uh, in frequency control, voltage, uh, uh, and uh, AMO and uh, the, the uh, with support from changes in rules from the AMC is, is getting on top of security. That was never going to be part of the neg anyway because everyone recognised that AMO was solving that problem. But reliability is about looking ahead and making sure we don't have a period where uh, supply and demand don't match. Now, you get stochastic shocks in an energy system, we're gonna, and we're going to get more of them in future. You get big spikes in demand in high weather and, and extreme uh, heat wave events are more common now than they were, and they'll be more common in 10 years' time. That's, that's called global warming. Uh, we're, we're already seeing it. Uh, and uh, that spikes up uh, suddenly uh, electricity demand. And what, and put strain on the balance between supply and demand. Uh, also, uh, the combination of the extreme age of our coal-based generators and the fact that there won't be new uh, uh, generators unless the market is pushed aside and costs are ignored and the government uh, subsidises uh, uh, new coal-based generators. Uh, the, age, the ageing generators plus um, uh, the, uh, uh, the difficulties that the coal-based generators, thermal generators, but especially old ones, have in very hot weather means that they're least reliable in a heat, heat wave. So the question of reliability is becoming more and more challenging over time. Uh, uh, now, uh, uh, su supply and demand, balancing supply always equals demand. There will never be a, a day and never be a minute when they don't uh, equal each other. The question is at what price? and uh, now, we stopped the market clearing at $14,000 a, a megawatt hour. My suggestion is that the National Energy Guarantee 
should be the Commonwealth providing a big hunk of uh, pumped hydro uh, to, to make sure that at a specified price, declared transparently, say $300 a, a megawatt hour, uh, enough energy is put into the system from their pumped hydro systems uh, to balance supply and demand. That does the job of reliability. Uh, Snowy 2 is probably big enough to do that until, until well into the 20s. But the good thing about Snowy is that you could make it four times as big. Uh, it would be cheaper four times as big per unit of capacity. Now that doesn't work if you run Snowy as a part of a market uh, oriented uh, business that's seeking to maximise profits. Snowy didn't use its own existing pumped hydro to balance supply and demand in a couple of the extreme weather events uh, uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, you, you've got to see, uh, you've got to uh, have a Commonwealth agency, I think better a Commonwealth agency providing a, 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 a service you could take, you could simply split uh, the, uh, uh, the current Snowy hydro uh, into two separate corporations. One of them has the job of delivering reliability. Uh, it gets its uh, 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 guidance from AEMO on how much capacity is, is required. It sits there making sure that there's capacity always to, to uh, balance supply and demand uh, when the price uh, uh, reaches $300. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Ross. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm the uh, lifer amongst the academy of the three of us so far, so um, I like to give a mini lecture. Um, I'm going to do some numbers. So Tony described me pretty uh, uh, accurately. I am an engineer, uh, pr proudly so, but I'm also very proud of a couple of people, particularly a gentleman halfway up the back here who did all the modelling I'm going to talk about tonight. I won't make you stand up, Daniel. Uh, but Daniel is about to submit his PhD and I called him away to do some modelling for us tonight uh, when he's busy finishing a 200-page book, effectively. So thank you, Daniel. <laughs> I'm going to do a, a, few, a few numbers um, and I'll go through this pretty quickly because I'm keener to hear from Chloe and Ross and, and, uh, and uh, Tony than, than, than myself too much. But I'll just do well, it's a pretty standard thing that you do in electricity systems. And I'm going to model, or rather Daniel has modelled, uh, 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 the Victorian network. It's big enough to be broadly relevant to what we're going to be doing across uh, the NEM anyway. And so we do uh, what's called a generation expansion plan where you work out, well, what's the load that we need to do, which is Victoria's consumption last year, and what's the cheapest way to build a fleet so that we can reliably meet that load. And I'll look at four cases, what I call a reference, and I'm going to put in wind and solar at $65 a megawatt hour unsubsidised. The keenest students of energy in the room will say that's about 10 bucks more than the VRET cleared earlier this week. Uh, that's largely due to financing, as I understand it. We can come back to that later on. I'm going to have some uh, coal and gas in there, of course. Combined cycle power and open cycle, so different types of gas turbines, a, a larger, um, uh, more cleaner but less dynamic form of generation plus a peaking plant. I'm going to uh, assume a pretty reasonable gas price for those two gas plants and a 10% uh, cost of capital. And then, of course, all modelling's wrong, but you just hope your own modelling is consistently wrong and hopefully conservatively wrong. 
and I hope that's the case tonight. Um, but some other scenarios. So that's instead of having $65 a megawatt hour renewables, we'll make it $45 a megawatt hour. So that actually serendipitously, the VRET straddles, is straddled by those two scenarios. We actually did this beforehand, which is completely lucky. Um, uh, but otherwise, uh, we're going to be doing much as we did before in the reference scenario. We're going to look at cheap gas. Could we actually get gas down from 10 bucks to 8 bucks or a couple bucks cheaper? Hmm, maybe, maybe not. And then also cheaper financing, which as I'll show, has a dramatic effect. So the sort of things you just get in terms of capacity across Victoria is as follows. You can see here, and I've used this concept called carbon price, which is not a new concept, I understand. Uh, but I'm, it's a good one, I think. I like it. It's a good idea. And uh, let, let's, let's, let's first have no carbon price at all, and then we'll say, what's the cheapest way for Victoria to meet its demand? So we build coal, combined cycle, open cycle, and solar. Now, all modelling's wrong. Hopefully, mine's conservatively and consistently uh, wrong. But, but you get renewables in right now, a little bit, about a gigawatt of capacity, pretty similar to the VRET, funnily enough, um, uh, and, but mainly coal, no surprises. If we wanted to get rid of that renewable energy, we'd have to have a negative carbon price. So we'd have to penalise renewable energy for being too cheap and then we'd um, uh, force it out of the system. And as we put up the carbon price a little bit, you see a very dramatic growth in wind. So $10, $20, $30, and so on and so forth. So with actually relatively low carbon prices, you can see relative to the time we had four-ish years ago, we had a carbon price, quite dramatic transformations, and that's because renewables are now cheaper than the wholesale market. So we'd have to have negative carbon price to get rid of renewables right now, because not having renewables is more expensive than having renewables. And then what does it mean in terms of price? I understand that is a big issue. And emissions. So you can see here, once again, to this case where we have no carbon price, we have no environmental objective, we just want to minimise costs. This coal-heavy fleet we achieve with my simple modelling here, uh, about 91, sorry, 0.91 tonnes per megawatt hour. Uh, if you put 20 bucks a tonne on, we almost halve that. And this is a boring, conservative set of input assumptions. So $20 a tonne, which is less than what we had when we got rid of it, carbon price, in, in this idealised situation, we'd roughly half our abatement, a little bit less than half at the moment. And you see as we go a little bit more, we get even deeper abatement. And I haven't put storage in here because that's pretty tricky, modelling storage properly. And that can only be a good news story if we put storage in as well, of course. So if you just think of these different scenarios then, here's the abatement. So abatement defined relative to this carbon price reference case, carbon price free reference case. And I put on the carbon price and you can see 10, 20 bucks, we're up around 50. With 20 bucks a tonne, we're up around 50% abatement. But wait, there's more as they say, as they say on late night television. So that's that $65 a megawatt hour renewables, which is about right now about a $50 a megawatt hour PPA, which some large universities and other organisations have been striking in the last few years. That's why I used that number. Um, uh, and if you look at that kind of thing, you say, OK, what about renewables? The march of progress, renewables will go down to 45 from 65 over the next 10 years, and that's pretty plausible from those in the sector. Well, that's what you get. So with no carbon price at all, the cheapest way with cheap renewables to, to, to uh, 
uh, achieve uh, supply equaling demand with no carbon price at all is about 40 per cent abatement. So indeed, Mr Taylor's right, we'll get there in a canter if we allow renewables to do their things. If we allow renewables to do their things. What about if we have gas cheaper? Now, gas, of course, is cleaner than coal, but it also is more flexible, so it allows the uptake of more renewables, so you get even deeper abatement. And then you get a rather counterintuitive uh, 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 counter result, which is if you have cheap financing. So don't be fooled by carbon prices, because that suggests that you need higher carbon prices, the green line, than, than some of these cheap gas, cheap renewables cases in order to achieve similar amounts of abatement. But I'll come back to that, because it's only the wholesale market price and the abatement that matters. And because you're cheap financing everything, everything's getting cheaper, so therefore you need higher carbon prices, even though the costs are lower, to, to do the good things and less of the bad things. So this is what matters, really. It's the abatement and the wholesale market price, the cost of the wholesale market price to consumers. And in this case, the market price you see here, we just did some simple plain vanilla input assumptions and we get $75 a megawatt hour. Currently, my first half of this year, Vic's sitting around about 80 bucks a megawatt hour, a little bit less, I think. So no, no trickery. Last year's demand traces, these input assumptions, that's what we get in the absence of any abatement policy. So zero carbon price. Uh, $10, $20, $30, $40, $50. And you can see that for the deeper levels of abatement, say 50%, we're paying about 15 bucks a megawatt hour overall. That, that cost there is the full cost of running the, running the system. It does include the carbon price going to consumers in that and different generators winning more and others winning less. So what about the cheap renewables? There's the scenario in terms of market price and abatement. So you can see you know, that 50% we're talking about, just by the march of progress, by renewables doing their thing, is achievable at negligible cost in terms of wholesale market price. Uh, uh, we can do 50% or so without much impost on the market price. What about cheap gas? Well, that helps, of course. Uh, you can see, you can see, well, gas enables the renewables to do more of the good stuff and it backs it up firmly like coal can, although gas does a better job. And then finally, if we finance it cheaply, we get that. Now, I've allowed everything here to be cheaper, including the coal plant, right? By the way, we still shut down all the coal plant like we did before, once you get to deeper levels of abatement, because you have to. So talking here about potentially cheap finance, you might be talking about $10 a megawatt hour falls in market price while you're halving your emissions. Just by putting more of the good stuff in and taking less of the, more of the good stuff out, all the bad stuff out. So what's the opportunity? It seems to me, anyway, that deep sectoral abatement, that is 50% plus, appears achievable by 2030 without significant increases in wholesale electricity prices. Indeed, prices may even fall Due, for, due to a confluence of favourable factors. So those scenarios don't say, what happens if we had cheap financing plus cheap renewables? I said, no, no, that's cheap financing and that's cheap renewables. If you have them both together, it gets better still. And forward markets are seeing this kind of thing and, and if you talk to people who operate and own these assets, they're projecting that wholesale market prices will fall significantly due to such factors acting together. So that deep repayment is primarily relying on the continued uh, deployment of low-cost renewables backed up by gas. 
But then we have these additional benefits, low-cost financing, big benefits there, reduced gas prices, hopefully possible, I'd love to see that, uh, and appropriate deployment of newer technologies, particularly demand response and storage, which I haven't modelled tonight because they're tricky to model, but can only be good. At worst, if you do it right, they'll have no impact, and if, you, if they are good, then they'll win and they'll make life better for all of us. So no surprises there, very similar to AEMO's analysis of ISP, renewables, gas and some storage, similar to other arguments put forward tonight, but you know, it's not, it's not, it's not rocket science. So a three-pronged approach, a cap-and-trade scheme. Why can't we just have a cap-and-trade scheme that's consistent with the Paris Agreement? Let's set that 50%-ish target or so by 2030, maybe more. Um, Alternative approaches can only be as good, and many of them are problematic. So if you start doing things like uh, uh, having lots and lots of zero and negative price events in your wholesale market, that's an incentive for people to consume more energy or you're paying people to take the energy, which conceptually, whoops, may not work uh, to the best. But it seems to me that it's very likely that if we did have a cap-and-trade scheme after 2030, the price is going to be less than 20 bucks a tonne, possibly significantly less than 20 bucks a tonne. Uh, implementation of the reliability guarantee, should the issues of transparency and market power be adequately addressed, or maybe we'll have to do some more substantial surgery like a capacity market. I'll come back to why we don't really want to do that unless transparency and market power are not adequately addressed with the reliability guarantee. And then, of course, all the issues of system security, which Chloe and Chloe, Chloe and Alan and, and others on the uh, uh, Finkel panel uh, uh, worked hard on, and is, which is uh, being implemented right now. But the priority is, of course, the emissions target. And that's not just because of climate change. Justify, justifiable on its own. A poor, absent environmental objective will lead to under slash the wrong investment, and so it will cost more than any real and therefore imperfect reliability or operational measure. So that, thank you very much, and ooh, there we go. Back to Tony. So those of you who um, have prejudices against particular professions would recognise why we don't allow engineers to run the system, or why we should allow engineers to run the system, depending on your point of view. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's, uh, the numbers are always intriguing, but as um, Michael said, um, the question is maybe um, how, how wrong they might turn out to be. So we've opened up a few, we've opened up a few issues here. One thing I was just going to take a slightly different tack only for a minute, just to, while you think about the sort of issues you'd like to raise with the panel, is that was put to me by someone there. I mean, at the first meeting that Josh Frydenberg chaired of the, um, the National Energy Council, he said, we have all stuffed up. We all, Labor, coalition, states, we have all industry, and now we need to think about how we're going to fix this. And um, things didn't exactly improve a lot from there, but um, that was an interesting, uh, I thought, an interesting reflection from someone who uh, had taken over as the environment and energy minister. Someone also put to me the other day that those of us who've tried to help, tried to contribute, tried to comment, um, tried to make input to this process, haven't done a great job either because demonstrably we are where we are. So I guess I was interested to ask um, each of you, how do you reflect on that? And uh, there are things that, I mean, was this, is this just been a, a combination of annoying individual circumstances that unfortunately have just played out but we'll get over that and now we'll move forward. Or is there something more fundamental about either energy or climate change or both 
that suggest we've got something else to learn about how we might achieve a better outcome. So we're not sitting here in 10 years' time thinking about what went wrong. Quite well, look, there's a lot in that question. And, you know, I've been thinking about climate change policy for you know, at least a quarter of a century. And uh, it is very much two steps forward, one step back. And you know, there was a moment where we did have an emissions trading scheme, which was actually pretty effective. Uh, and um, that was you know, a step too far. And it, it would have delivered a carbon price of actually much less than $23. It would have been around, it would have tied to the European price and been around $8, rising to maybe around 10 now. And we do have a carbon price in Australia in the Emissions Reduction Fund, which is around $13. So there are actually little fragments of that left. So, you know, I, um, uh, I was recently uh, nominated as one of the AFR 100 Women of Influence for 2018. And I thought, you know, I didn't think, oh, I really feel like I've influenced absolutely nothing. But it's not true. Uh, there are things where I think we have moved forward and we are in a better place than we were. And often it is because of the pursuit. There was a period when there was, you know, everybody was taking the small points. And this was certainly true around the emissions trading scheme that we had. And the uh, Business Council was fighting bitterly. You know, they'd say, we want to have an international linked emissions trading scheme with appropriate protections, but not this one. And this bit's wrong, and this bit's wrong, and this bit's wrong. They've stopped doing that now. And now people generally say, well, let's see if we can agree around this, let's work on it. But we're still, you know, lacking quite enough civility, I think, to get to the landing point. Um, so I don't actually think that as commentators and agitators, we have completely failed. Uh, but one of the important things to always be humble about is that, you know, we're obsessed with climate change and energy. It's not a closed system. There's a lot of factors outside of the system which influence our fate, whether it's the GFC or it's the contest for leadership between different um, political forces or whatever. They are real things. And, um, you know, we can't just always, sometimes we're overwhelmed by them. But I still think there's, there's plenty of opportunity to inch forward. And there is some evidence that we've done that. Yeah, as Chloe said, we had a very good system in place for two years, and uh, and the day it was abolished uh, was the day we would have trans transitioned into uh, the international system uh, uh, at the European price. Uh, the Business Council uh, had fought bitterly against uh, a, an emissions trading scheme that was linked to the Europeans at the time when it was a live issue uh, because they thought the European price was going to be high. Uh, and then after the European price fell, uh, they still found reasons for objecting to the carbon price because the squeaky wheels in the Business Council would prefer no action on climate change at all. And, and it's part of the dynamics of that type of business organisation that those who feel most strong, strongly about an issue end up dominating the, the group and the national interest uh, uh, disappears. This is a hard issue. Any hard issue, uh, our democratic polity, and I, I love it uh, for all of its warts, uh, uh, takes a while to come to grips with things. The analogy that I think is clearest is uh, the, the um, universal health coverage bitterly opposed before uh, Whitlam introduced it in 74. The most divisive issue at the first half of the 70s, it was, uh, it was introduced, the majority of the community liked it, a new government came in and, and, and killed it, strongly supported, strongly funded in their political campaigns by vested interests. Uh, a new 
uh, the Hawke government came in and reinstated it. Uh, the opposition went to four elections uh, promising to get rid of it again and lost every time. And the fifth time they accepted uh, the, the democratic verdict uh, and uh, Howard accepted it in 96, said we won't touch Medicare and they won the election. Uh, I, I think this is a bit like this and uh, the big thing that's changed, two big things have changed since 2008. It is 10 years almost to the, to the or certainly to the week since we, we put in the report uh, that Tony gave me tremendous help on. Um, uh, one is public education. Uh, the enduring legacy of all that work that we did is that uh, it did affect uh, community understanding of it and uh, the, the, uh, the Climate Change Review report is still on the web and uh, accessed frequently by very large numbers of students at high school and university. So uh, it's part of a process of, of public education and the community's mind is in a different place better understanding now than it was. And the other thing, the big, big thing that's changed is a huge thing. Uh, and uh, if, if you like, uh, if you're asking us to reflect on what we got wrong, we, we hugely underestimated the rate of reduction in the cost of renewables. Uh, 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 we, at the time, uh, Tony was one of our team that we consulted elaborately with everyone who knew something about this to try to form a realistic view of the rate of of uh, technological improvement, a rate of reduction in costs as a result of improvement in technology. And we wrote into the models, uh, it was audacious modeling of the Australian economy up to the end of this century, and we wrote into that uh, an improvement, a reduction in uh, costs of solar of about 3% per annum. Well, in the first nine years after the report came out, costs fell by 85% of photovoltaic panels. And, and that has that's actually transformed the choice uh, and it's behind the green line. Well, the, the, well the green, two things behind the green line. One is the reduction in the costs of renewables and the second, the fact, uh, uh, just a bit more on that for a moment. Uh, uh, right now, the Victorian government today announced, or yesterday announced its uh, uh, results of its uh, VRET auction. Uh, the, the price that people are bidding in is $56. The, uh, the ACCC report said that the price of the coal alone on, uh, on a New South Wales or Queensland uh, uh, generator is 75 bucks a megawatt hour. So yeah, the whole new plant produces power much more cheaply than the coal alone uh, in, into a New South Wales or Queensland generator. Now you've got to, you, you've got to balance it uh, with uh, um, peaking or storage or of one form uh, or another, but take all of those things into account uh, and uh, uh, the technology has improved enough for, for uh, an objective of minimisation of prices to require rapid introduction of renewables. Uh, uh, now when you add uh, low-cost capital to the technological improvement, you, you get shockingly low costs of renewables. And you, well, you combine the green line and, and the other line. I haven't done it yet, but uh, you're right. Uh, uh, um, you, you get costs down around uh, uh, much less than half of the cost alone into a, a coal generator. So uh, that's, that's the good news. We, we, need, a, we need stability in, in the system. We, uh, uh, so the business could, can get on and deliver investment at these very low uh, costs. Uh, we need 
um, the removal of threats uh, that subsidies are going to be provided to to bring back the horse and cart uh, to, to, uh, as uh, motor vehicles start to uh, find their way onto the roads. Uh, um, uh, we, we would go faster with uh, uh, some systematic uh, uh, efficient uh, incentives. Uh, that would mean that we're much more likely to do our fair share uh, in um, in the global effort on climate change. And it happens if you do the the uh, econometric modelling uh, professionally and are not driven by those that paid you, you'll find that that gives you a faster rate of introduction of renewables, gives you lower prices as well. Michael, I, when you were in the presentation, partly triggered by Ross's comment, um, you know, it was noted that um, the Prime Minister said we're going to meet our target at a canter, and yet the government's own numbers suggest that we're not on track to achieve a target. Is it the wrong race course? I think so. I mean, I can only do, or I can only ask other people to do, uh, uh, bright young people to do uh, the work that we do and they're the numbers we get. And it's not, there's no trickery in it. And they're the numbers and that's what you get. And, and so I don't know what race course they're on, but oh well, good luck. Can I just go back though, the stuff around this sort of con deep con contention. Thinking about this when I'm looking, when I'm talking to companies who build this stuff, right? And I'm thinking of three in particular: General Electric, Siemens, and Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, who are probably top three in gas turbines, wind turbines, and batteries, and lots of things, right? Siemens built the first electric, commercial electric vehicle. It's called the London Underground, and and Londoners loved it because they'd prefer have to not have carbon monoxide and soot to breathe in when they were getting around underneath London in 120, 30 years ago. So th these companies are the basis of our industrial economy and our capitalistic world, and we invented antitrust laws and other things to keep some of them under better control and so on and so forth. So, so over the last 10, 15 years, there was an argument, is this cheaper, is that cheaper, which way which way's going to go, which it's not. I think that argument now, when you talk to the research centres and the heads of strategies in these big firms, there's not that argument anymore. It's a question of, do we have a business selling this non-renewable thing at all? And, and deep existential questions around that. And then, or can we think of some clever ways to complement what is this inevitable widespread deployment of renewables with clever gas turbines plus storage or DR plus this or so on and so forth. So, so the, the debate's already over inside the people most heavily invested in many of these things. And, and, so, and so working out exactly what they're going to do, well, the market will determine that and, and pull that out. But there's no question at all that, 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 that renewables are going to go. So, so I think we are in a new world in the last year or two. There's this sort of global consensus amongst the people who build this stuff. Right, we need to open up this to your input. Um, so firstly, um, we have got a couple of microphones, so could you please um, wait till you get the microphone? Secondly, could you, if you have got an affiliation, state what, uh, what that is? And thirdly, could you please try and make sure you ask a question um, so that we get as much possible input as we can? And I think the gentleman in the middle up the back there, please, Megan. Uh, hello. Um, Actually, my name's Nick Cataforis. I am from Siemens, but I'm representing my personal 
capacity for the question. Just a question for Chloe. Um, Chloe, it was quite refreshing to hear your views about the NEG and uh, the process, etc. Um, in terms of where to from here, though, the government always referred to the ESB as the independent experts. But my impression from what you were saying and what from the others are saying is that perhaps there was a political compromise, you know, the art of the possible. In terms of where we go from here, don't we need our independent experts to be truly independent and give the government and the public <coughs> real advice? Uh, yeah, look, that's a great question, and I um, dealt with this issue quite a lot when I was an independent regulator, and I was independent, and you know, the, uh, and I protected that very fiercely. But at the same time, there is absolutely no point in giving advice that's purely theoretical and has no opportunity to be implemented. And I think it's quite legitimate for them to do. So their job was the Energy Security Board was set up really to do two things. One was to, in a sense, be the program office for the implementation of the Finkel recommendations. And the other was to assist the Energy Council in holding uh, essentially the energy market bodies to account for the performance of the system for which they were joint and severally responsible, as Ross said, and they would do that particularly by having uh, you know, a lot of transparency in reporting. And those two functions still sit there. Uh, so the government kind of, it was convenient for the government to say, well, you know, this has been given to us by independent thinking, but of course they were responding to a particular question and it's constrained optimization. And I don't think they were wrong to have a go at that. I think it's uh, tragic that it meant that they wasted you know, so much effort um, in doing something which was ultimately unsuccessful when they could have been perhaps driving some of the other parts of the Finkel recommendations a bit harder. But I don't, you know, I, I don't think, they, they answered the question that they were asked, bringing the best thinking that they could to the problem. And there is, you know, there is just so much of the time where there is no point just saying, well, we know that you don't want this, and we know you've rejected that, and we know that you'll never agree to this in a million years, but this is what you should do. Uh, sometimes you've got to be just a little bit more pragmatic. Uh, and, I, you know, so I certainly wouldn't criticise the ESB for that. At the same time, I do think it's important that, um, you know, people like Ross and Tony and myself can still stand a bit further back and say, if you could find your way towards this better thing, it would give better outcomes. You can say that, but I don't think it was the role of the Energy Security Board to do that. I'm Murray Griffin from Footprint News. Hi. I was wondering if the panel could comment on what emissions policies, emissions reductions policies, you'd like state governments to implement and what you'd like federal labour to take to the next election. Who wants to have a go at that? I could have a quick go. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Federal Labor could take the clean energy target to the next election. Uh, it has the virtue that it would be very quick to implement because all the infrastructure to do it is, is pretty much there. And it's simple, it's well understood, and it's transparent. And it can also be adaptable to changing targets. It's not a whole of economy solution, which would be better but is a bit more distant, I think. So that's what I would recommend the, the um, uh, Labour opposition thinks about seriously uh, on 
at least that part, but then they have to think about the other sectors as well, and electrification of transport, for example, very important. So it's not a complete solution. And they have to set a trajectory, and they have to look out towards net zero around the second half of the century, because that's all that will actually meet the objectives. So in terms of the states, they've got fewer levers. I think the reverse auctions have a lot of merit to them, and I've got a lot of experience in running reverse auctions. But they have a bit of risk of being stop-start. So you do a bit, and then are you going to do the next bit? So it doesn't necessarily all add up to a coherent um, trajectory, but it has the benefit of being contractual, and therefore once it's done, it's done, and generally that's locked in. So you don't get the sort of sovereign risk if everybody changes their mind once the contract's actually been there and executed. Uh, so I think that's quite a reasonable thing for them to do. But, you know, you do need some not just kind of uh, getting all excited by an ear, you know, just to digress, Ross talked about snowing. I thought it was a really interesting idea he put up. It really bothered me that suddenly, you know, this huge, hugely expensive, very long distance, building an enormous amount of infrastructure in a national park is like, this is the bee's knees, totally without the context of a plan. In the context of a plan, it makes sense. Just kind of slinging that in uh, out of enthusiasm, to me, was not adequate. So that's the risk, and, and, and the state governments need to, need to avoid that. The, um, we haven't yet heard whether the current prime minister agrees with the previous nation-building prime minister about Snowy Hydro 2.0. Oh, I thought he had indicated that that would all stay. But... He said today... He said today uh, that that is the great legacy of uh, oh. Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. there you go. Ross, what, what's your...? Yeah, um, the clean energy target would be good and it has the great virtue that it can slip into the uh, uh, arrangements that are there for the renewable energy target, which uh, Chloe administered very well for a number of years. Um, uh, actually, the the preference for a clean energy target and over a renewable energy target in current circumstances is a preference of boffins of economists like myself because it's a very little practical significance now. The main benefit once would have been that it, it gives a bit of an uplift to gas, but gas at current prices has priced itself out of the market, so a renewable energy target would do the job uh, more or less uh, as well. The problem with with that, uh, with the low party going to, two problems with the low party going to an election on that. Uh, one is it would be subject to a huge scare campaign about, uh, although it would actually, we know from analysis and from lots of modelling, would reduce prices, uh, including over the longer term. Uh, the, uh, the scare campaign would, said that, would say that it wouldn't, and, and you'd get it very well funded from business uh, to, to obfuscate uh, the reality. Uh, so it would be quite a hard thing to maintain. Secondly, uh, 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 the opposition in, at that time, uh, after the Labor government was trying to implement this, if it's built around the current leadership of the government, uh, would be promising to repeal it, and you'd have a continuation of uh, uncertainty. So uh, it's, it's not a panacea. It's, it's worth thinking about. I think to make it uh, um, practical, You'd have to build in a mechanism for transparent public analysis of the effects on price, uh, and, uh, like the Parliamentary Budget Office, not, not the Treasury, regrettably, once our great um, uh, institution for independent analysis, but, but it just 
it, it's, it farmed out a number of uh, um, uh, modeling exercises to private sector uh, firms who just take their marching orders and give the results that, that's required. But maybe the parla new parliamentary budget office uh, could, could run a, camp uh, a transparent uh, process that, uh, and, uh, and the commitment that the Labor Party took to an election could be a commitment subject to discussion of that public analysis, uh, transparent analysis, it would go ahead with it. Uh, one thing you can do uh, without, uh, that, that would have quite a powerful effect uh, without, uh, in the electricity sector, without uh, uh, having to worry too much about another government changing it is, uh, uh, introduce uh, the ACCC's recommendation on uh, underwriting uh, of investment uh, uh, and uh, uh, that would be done contractually. Uh, so firms that, that made investment on that basis uh, would, uh, uh, would have recourse uh, to, to the courts if the government uh, took away their rights without compensation uh, and, and governments in practice wouldn't interfere with that uh, uh, if they act consistently with practice in the past. And that would give you the green line, uh, lowering the cost of capital. In fact, I think your green line is based on 5% cost of capital. It would immediately reduce the debt, and that, that was all done in real terms. Uh, it, it, the real cost of capital to the Commonwealth at the moment is less than half a percent. Uh, and, and so you get those costs at 5%. The cost of renewables is almost all capital. Uh, you dramatically uh, reduce the cost below that green line. So that's, and, and that would give you 50% uh, renewables by uh, 2030 very comfortably uh, uh, while reducing wholesale prices uh, very considerably. So, so that's politically a nice safe one. Right. Keep going. This gentleman right down the front here, Megan, if you could. And before you ask your question, sir, can I just make one point? We tried this last time. We do not want to be dominated by male Christians. So if someone could think of that, um, we'll try. We'll have a go at a little, slight alternative. But, sir, please. Yeah, thank you. My name is Johan. I've been working in the energy market for 30 years. I wanted to ask you a hypothetical question, but underlying it is a very simple assumption, you know, the naive economic modelling of comparing two generation fuels, one with a marginal cost of production zero and the other one with a positive marginal cost of production. And, you know, if you look, it doesn't matter how much higher the zero marginal cost one is, eventually it'll be cheaper. And the hypothetical question is, if last year somebody had proved that anthropogenic climate change is a hoax, and let's say, you know, the, the craziest alt-right, um, you know, conspiracy theory was proven right, what would you have been saying today? Michael, which green lines would you have used instead of abatement? And I'm, I'm asking this, obviously, you, you, you can see, you know, the rationale behind it, you know, that this is such an obstacle, you know, this silly acceptance of, of uh, anthropogenic climate change as science, but it seems to me we don't need it, or at least, you know, we, we could start building uh, a, a policy without it. So that's the question. Well, so my case there with the zero carbon price is essentially that case. There's no environmental objective. If you do all the clever things that various people are proposing we do, then you either get no impact on wholesale market price or reduction of wholesale market price as renewables get cheaper. So, so if climate change was a hoax, you'd still put them in, in the absence of any environmental objective, up to a point. 
One qualification, we would not have the huge reduction, would not have had the huge reductions in costs of re renewables without uh, policies uh, related to climate change. The reduction in, in price of photovoltaic panels, which has transformed the cost of, uh, uh, of solar PV, uh, uh, was, had its origins in European policy promoting solar energy for climate change reasons. Mm. That created a market. Uh, clever young kids uh, from China who'd done PhDs in electrical engineering uh, at the University of New South Wales, sorry. No, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, went back to China, set up businesses, started supplying Europe, uh, started, found that, uh, uh, that, that the large market gave them scale. As scale uh, expanded, costs fell further. They became competitive in China. China became the ma main market. Costs kept falling. It was a uh, policy uh, to uh, promote renewables for climate change reasons that got the cost reductions going. Oh, hello, uh, my name is Natasha Sinclair. I'm a master's student here at Melbourne. I have a question for Ross. Um, I've been thinking about um, the comparison between uh, Europe and Australia in terms of our climate policies. Um, it seems that Europe has been uh, making great inroads, uh, setting high targets and also a long way towards achieving them. And I guess I'm, I'm wanting to know your thoughts on uh, why is there such a difference in the ability, I guess, of the, uh, the European Union to uh, make such inroads uh, compared to what we're seeing here in Australia? Well, there's a serious study at Oxford University by political scientists of this question, and they looked at lots of variables, and what they're trying to explain was why public opinion on these matters, the spectrum, is in a different place, closer to the people who say climate is, people who say science is bullshit uh, are much more influential in Australia and the United States than in other countries. You don't have similar uh, uh, beliefs that, that, that atmospheric physics is bullshit uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in Europe or Japan or China or India or Korea uh, uh, or Canada as you have in the United States and Australia. And this, this uh, research at the Oxford University said the crucial variable the dummy variable that explains the difference uh, is uh, the influence of News Corp. <laughs> you need to understand Ross was using technical language when he described what was going on. There. <laughs> it's quite, it's yeah, quite it's in Tony Abbott, isn't it? Just that behind. No, sorry. Thanks, Tony. Um, Karis Palmer from Schwartz Media. Uh, just a question based on what you were saying, Ross, about how wrong you got the modelling on the solar price and whether you think coming down and whether you think that people right now have it wrong in terms of the technology change and impact on, on renewable prices in the future. Uh, I think that the reality has gone has moved faster than perceptions of the reality. That, that's more or less inevitable. Uh, but uh, uh, we wouldn't be having a debate about uh, whether a 50% renewable energy target would increase prices if people understood the points that Michael was taking, uh, making uh, uh, about the changes in the, in the technology. So uh, 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 yes, people today don't, don't understand it, but that's, that's the normal learning lag on any big uh, uh, public issue. Um, hi, P 
Petra Stock. Um, what do you think the prospects are for the planned transition of coal after all that's happened with AGL and Liddell now going on? Well, I might uh, just talk to that briefly. I mean, I think um, the um, the tussle between the government and AGL, oh, I could talk a lot about that, but it, it um, AGL made its decisions for good commercial reasons, and I think people who know what power stations are like know that Liddell was always a dog. It doesn't perform well. Ross talked about power stations that don't, thermal power stations not performing well in heat. Liddell has demonstrated that, so it doesn't deliver reliability, and uh, they want to have control of their assets and do some different things. So I think. There is, you know, there may be some of the power stations in the existing fleet where there might be, it might be worthwhile investing to extend their useful life, but I doubt it. It's not surprising that Angie made the decision that they did, because it was going to cost them an absolute fortune to keep that power station operating reasonably reliable. And also, you know, globally, they'd made the decision to get out of coal. I think, you know, eventually, if you get the, the policy structure right, then people will make their decisions if it makes commercial sense. So if it turns out that if we had some sensible climate stable policy of the sort Russ was uh, talking about, then if people think that they can, for example, re-blade re their turbines and get a bit more efficiency and get some, a bit of emissions reduction out of the existing plant, let them do it. I don't have a problem with that, provided you've got the constraints in place to make sure it happens that way. That's true. I just think that the economics of doing that is getting worse and worse relative to um, what are, you know, sure. modular, easy to build engineering things. So that, I think that, so the bigger risk is, is the lack of orderly transition where, um, you know, the market goes gangbusters, uh, a lot of renewables come in and that's all very good. And then, um, you know, some sudden decision again is taken to close some power stations and the, and the supply either on demand response, which is a very underutilized resource and is dispatchable and is quite important, but either on that side or on new generation coming in, there's a mismatch and then you have a period of time, this is what we've just seen, you have a period of time where supply demand balance is very tight and, and, and prices go up and that causes a lot of mayhem and often causes bad policy. So I think this orderly, your focus on the orderly transition is still very important. Uh, the notice of closure, which was part of the Finkel recommendations, uh, has, you know, Victorian government's legislating on that. It is in train. There is a rule change around that. There are, you know, enforceability issues around it, but it's still a good sort of concept that they can't just suddenly withdraw. So that all helps the orderliness. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd be very surprised myself if any of the existing fleet was in the market longer than is forecast at the moment based on their current life, design life. It's 2022, isn't it? 2022 yeah. is Liddell, and then there's a gradual yeah. drop down. Not you too know. far away the three-year notice for closure <laughs> deadline then. Well, they uh, gave their notices of closure. They gave six well, years' notice. Well, I, I know they, they gave six years' they notice. They did, but formal. So yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm worried we get beyond... I'm worried that we get beyond the three years and then we're scrambling to find something else that can meet the reliability requirement. Um, we've had one practical example of a government seeking through subsidy to prolong the life of a coal-based generator, Collie in Western Australia, where the Barnett government put $300 million into uh, trying to uh, extend the life of coal and wrote it off as a $300 uh, dead loss. The only good news is hopefully the shareholders, $300 million. The shareholders are the ones who, got the, who, who have to swallow that rather than the government funding them, which is 
would be yeah. a big deal. Well, probably got one time for one more question. I think there was one right up. Yes, please at the back there. Hi, uh, Colin Wayne here in a personal capacity, I guess. Uh, just picking up on that point, one of the potential uses of the ACCC recommendation for a new capacity could be to extend the life of existing capacity. Um, interested, I guess, in the panel's view on that. Um, I think reading the the Australian this week, uh, there's already at least one coal power station positioning to get some federal funding to extend its life. Uh, yeah, interested in the views. Michael, do you want to? Well, I mean, I imagine lots of people were positioned for for different forms of federal funding for lots of different things. Um, but you know, we need to get on and build firm stuff and the clean stuff and all that sort of stuff. And if we're not going to do that, we're not going to do that during a lead up to a federal election. I am concerned that we might have a life raft left at the end and we have to get on the life raft. And it's not going to be the cheapest thing to do, but there might only be the life raft left and it might be extending some of these assets. Um, but you know, we just need to get on and build the firm clean stuff and do it. I'm uh, not as enthusiastic as Ross is for uh, that ACCC recommendation. I mean, I think that the, it identified a genuine problem, uh, which is about risk allocation. Uh, but I have reservations, and part of the reservation is because uh, I'm less trusting that the process wouldn't be interfered with and guided towards particular outcomes. On the other hand, I have to say, you know, if it is the most economic thing and it's just one kind of injection of a bit more time, that's just one power station. The, the, the overall direction of the portfolio is still pretty clear. So it wouldn't be disastrous, and certainly there are other people lining up for seeing, you know, in, including um, uh, Sanjeev Gupta, Ross's colleague, you know, with um, Simic, and, and seeing, you know, how you could make uh, other um, sources of reliability, um, store, uh, storage, solar thermal solar, all these sorts of things. So there are other people who would come forward with propositions that would do the same thing. Uh, so this, it's not obvious it would necessarily win, but let's say just one, probably it wouldn't be a disaster, but you're not going to get the whole industry kind of heading in that direction. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have, the, there was a lot of uh, reaction against that ACCC recommendation from people who want a faster climate transition uh, I myself would be very comfortable about that being introduced uh, on a general basis, being available for investment in rehabilitation of old coal, building of new coal generators, renewable energy uh, uh, storage. Uh, I don't, if that was the only uh, support provided, and if it was provided on a level playing field with uh, support for uh, renewables and storage, I don't think you'd get investment, but if you did, uh, um, I, uh, I I wouldn't uh, see it as being a disaster. Okay, well, as always, um, we think um, we've not had enough time for a good discussion and there's plenty of questions and hands up, so I only can apologise to those people who didn't get a chance to ask a question or make a comment. Um, so at least for me then to simply wrap this up, um, firstly, um, Thank you to the organisers. We have this ongoing partnership between Grattan and Melbourne Energy Institute. Um, we continue to get good attendance. Presumably the people are interested in some of the stuff and we'll certainly be looking at our program of what you might see in the, in the foreseeable future. And we'll see some of the, um, so the, uh, whether the forecast or the modelling you saw tonight plays out or not. 
Um, secondly, specifically, it's to ask, ask the people, it's like the people who helped organise tonight. Um, there's a lot of mechanics go behind these sort of things to make sure they, they happen. Um, the audio works, the, um, the slides work and so forth. So thank you to those people. And um, finally, let me ask you to join me, uh, sorry, and also thank you for turning up tonight, because if this room had been empty, we'd have had a nice chat, but it wouldn't have been so interesting. Um, so look, thank you again, and please join me in thanking the panel. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.